0: There. Who knew you are on In Your Face on 3CR with James On today's show our guests are Joe Ball Former Senator Brian Gregg And filmmaker Melanie Rowland joins us But we do have Joe Ball on the line from Switchboard Joe, welcome to the show Thanks James A huge debacle with the census this week A lot of LGBTIQ folks very upset Uh, Of course you are fighting to have inclusion in the census Since 2019 It's been a long campaign The government clearly just didn't listen
1: yeah, that's right, James. It was an interesting experience. I think a lot of people on census night opened up their census, you know, which was the 10th of August this week, opened up their online form and were quite surprised. But as you know, James, we talked about it here on your show way back in 2019. Actually, the decision was made over a year ago, finalised and signed off that the questions would not be in there. Um, And that's how the census works. So, although people were surprised, I wasn't surprised. Um, But that doesn't mean I I remain disappointed about it and hopeful for 2026.
0: It's such a lost opportunity in the short term, isn't it? Because, of course, the the census is so valuable for planning for infrastructure and service provision. And, you know, how can we adequately plan for the LGBTIQ community if we're not counted in?
1: That's right. I mean, I'm a big, I want to be clear, I'm a big census fan. Um, So, I come from it. From a point of view of wanting the census, you know, I keenly fill out the census every every five years, and I really encourage people, even though we're having this conversation today, to still fill it out because it is still important, even though their sexuality, gender, and sex questions are not in there. But it is, um, it, it's a it's a lost opportunity, and it's a longitudinal data lost opportunity because we're not in this census, which means even if we're in future ones. We've missed this opportunity at this point of time to see where our communities are and benchmark that against five years' time.
0: Ideally, what should the Census have asked?
1: Yeah, look, I think that... I think it's time to ask the sexuality question, Um, you know, to ask whether people are LGBTIQA+, to ask people what their sexuality is. I think that there's a lot of planning around that that is really important because of the poor mental health outcomes that are in our community, but also sexual health um, and uh, all the different sort of spectrums around health. So I think it's time to ask the sexuality question and it's time to have a sex question that includes male, female, intersex, non-binary, and a free text field option for people to enter, whether they're transgender or gender diverse or other forms of identity. Because, of course, in this census, we saw the intersex question actually drop off um, and be replaced by the non-binary one, and I actually think we can have a lot more categories in there um, to cover uh, sex. And we can ask... I would also say we could ask a gender question. We can ask a sex question, sex assigned at birth, and we could even go and ask the gender question.
0: Yeah, it doesn't really cut in 2021 that they're not asking those questions. I mean, let's focus on sexuality for a moment. What's the government's rationale there? Surely they don't think that people would be offended or embarrassed.
1: Well, you know, we talked about this last time, and people who we don't remember it (laughs) so long ago when we had this conversation, but that's exactly why um, they didn't include it. They they felt like, and and when I say the government, it was Michael Sukup had a lot of say in this. Um, but he felt like and he made this you know he said this to the abs and he and he really really got rid of the sexuality question he thought that if we asked people if they're lesbian gay bisexual transgender intersex queer um if we asked them whether they're heterosexual that people would be deeply offended if we asked that question even though that was his public justification even though we know that all the time, people complete these things on sample surveys that the ABS points out. It's not like we haven't tested this idea before. Uh, and there's no evidence to show that people would outright reject the census if they were asked this question. If people were heterosexual, if they didn't identify as part of the LGBTIQA plus community, they would just, they would just get the opportunity to say they're heterosexual. I don't think it would offend them to do that. Um, and I think, rather, that was a public justification and I think it had no evidence based on it, and I think it was really him just talking to his base that don't want to see this data collected.
0: Well, that's right, the Assistant Treasurer Michael Sukar is a member of the, the you know, far right faction of the Liberal Party, isn't he? Uh, an MP from Victoria, uh, and uh, yeah, as you say, it doesn't really appeal to his ideological kind of position, I guess. Uh, but what really struck me, Joe, was they were very you know keen to ask about religion in the in the census.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, the religion question. So since not, the census has been around since 1911 in Australia. It was a post-federation um, you know, inclusion uh, policy. And one of the things about it is that the religion question has always been on the census. Um, but um, t- for about the first 50 years, it was an optional question. You did not have to complete it. There was an idea that that wasn't really, in the early days of the census, that important what people's religion is. And it actually shows over time um people have written about this that it's become increasingly uh, a very political hot topic that people want the religion uh, question to be compulsory, which it is today. if you don't answer and que- don't answer that, you can't answer the rest of the census uh, on the online version. And I think that you know it really speaks to how that religion question is treated on the census. Um, and in fact, for I think it was two censuses ago they made no religion the top option. Um, on the religion question and a lot of people who were in the sort of the right of the religious faction, um, they were very angry, very, very angry that the first option was no religion and they thought that was sort of some affront. Um, But of course, uh, you know, the the census should be a neutral thing. It shouldn't be a politically loaded thing. It should be about just recording who, where and what and you know, who we are, really. It should be including our diversity. It shouldn't be about how do we get the most amount of people to say that we're Christian um, by having Christian at the top as opposed to no religion or some other religion.
0: Yeah, it really says a lot about the government's ideology. Joe, I remember when we chatted about this in December 2019, it was just when the government had launched what looked like a sham consultation on the census. There was a very Tight turnaround time for submissions to, to be submitted. I think it was like January, so it wasn't long at all. Uh, you know, it sounds like the government's got a pretty entrenched position about about how the census should run.
1: Yeah, I think that they I think that they they just don't want to see this data included. And I think particularly, I mean, it's hard to talk about the government in its entirety because uh, because I must say that um, Minister Greg Hunt, the health minister, has he actually argued for the inclusion of sexuality sex and gender questions on the census. So, I mean, all credit to um, Greg Hunt, who did that, and I think he did that quite clearly because he understood the need of it as somebody who heads up the portfolio of health. I don't think... It, I think should, it should be a bipartisan support. It shouldn't be a loaded issue. But I think um, when we saw that, sort of, as you talked about, you named the right of the party party, is they don't want to see this included because it will lead to planning... Um, and, uh, evidence based responses around health that will include us. And I think that really speaks to not, you know, not an equitable, you know, an equity response to how we should be planning our future society. It's actually an exclusionary response if you don't want to collect all the evidence that could be collected in order to make that future planning.
0: Yeah, and it really shows how polarised politics has become, doesn't it? I mean, you know, in the eighties and nineties, the census wasn't that you know much of a political issue, was it? Certainly, in the in the eighties, it wasn't. Uh, it just shows how polarised things have become, which is really unfortunate because it shouldn't be about politics. It's about you know planning for the community.
1: That's right. I think it's very dangerous if the census becomes a, a hot political topic. Unfortunately, at times it does. I mean, Donald Trump, when he came in in America, one of the things he wanted to get rid of was the census, um, which speaks to, you know, whether people, you know, I think that says a lot about um, not wanting to know, not to, wanting to know the diversity of your community, or not caring about it for future planning. I think, you know, actually, every government of any political stripe should be interested in the, in the lay of the land so to speak, in order to do that planning. But I think when you see people either wanting to get rid of the census or wanting to, um, uh, like, sort of strip it of, um, of, you know, strip it of important questions that should be asked in 2021, like their sex, sexuality questions and gender questions, then you've got to ask, you know, why don't they want to know this information? And I think um, we need to get the census back to this kind of just thing that we do, Um That just is not loaded Um, and I think that they're going to have a real climb, the Australian Bureau of Statistics is going to have a real climb in 2026 to win the trust and confidence back of the LGBTIQA plus community and I think they're going to need to seriously consider funding an LGBTIQA plus consultation and engagement, a community engagement strategy to be able to get over this hill. Because the last time we heard about the ABS before what I would now deem in 2021 a census fail, the last time we heard about them was when they ran the postal survey for our community. So we already had a, a, a sort of a disquiet about them. Then we've had this year's census fail. They've got a hill to climb and they're going to have to invest money to win our trust and confidence back.
0: And it's really distressing for the gender diverse community because the government's got so many policies that seem to be about erasing them.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think that you know that, like I, I I think you know that they have not shown a commitment to how the community really looks today, and they want to sort of wind back the clock on some rights that have already been run. The, the reality is that people under law in Australia can identify as non-binary, so you're actually setting up. You know, people can have X on their um, on their passports. People can change their birth certificates in most states in Australia. So we've actually creating forms the national australian census actually is a form now that is you know going against uh laws that are currently in place and identities that people currently
2: hold
0: and of course this has come at a bad time during lockdown here in melbourne and in much of the country uh, i imagine that's triggering the community quite a bit are you picking up on that at switchboard
1: yeah look i mean more so just in the broader community of sort of the, the different platforms and the social media platforms. I mean, I can't say that there's been a, that direct correlation of people calling us because they're upset about the census. Um, but I, I think that, you know, there's, there's definitely an element of being a slap in the face when you're down. Um, and I think that genuinely people, you know, me, you know, you and me, James, we weren't surprised because we talked about it before, but a lot of people were really surprised and expected a lot more in 2021 from the census. I did think people, um, yeah, I think they, as you said, they were triggered. Um, people were upset and people just had such a higher expectation and um, certainly certainly didn't need that at this time and, and didn't want to be thinking about that they're going to be collecting, you know, what I would call junk data on our communities for the next five, you know, that covers the next five years until the next census.
0: Of course, Switchboard runs the out and about service for older LGBTIQ folks. Uh, how's that going, especially during lockdown?
1: Yeah, we're currently. Yeah, thanks for that question. We're currently supporting eighty people, um, which is and eighty people who live in their own home um, or in an aged care facility across Victoria. It's a. It's a very. Uh, we have people who are in you know hard lockdowns in aged care. Um, whenever there's a lockdown, it's even harder. Always in aged care. Uh, we've got people who are still, you know, waiting on vaccination. Um, and, you know, it's a challenging time for people. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of concern. And as people are sort of coming to the, the, you know, the sunset of their life, if you like, um, it's not how people want to spend sort of two years, you know, in this circumstance. So we're seeing a lot of depression, anxiety, and our older folks that we're currently supporting and out and about. But we're also seeing... Um, some really beautiful exchanges between volunteers who, during lockdown, you know, uh, we'll go and stand outside people's houses and wave at them and talk on the phone and, and try and find, you know, creative and um, possible ways to, to, to connect with each other. People writing letters, um, phone calls more than um, phone calls. And for people that can get across the technology, you know, using those technology platforms, the Facebook Messenger and so forth and the voice call, uh, the uh, video call. So we're seeing a lot of people being really flexible and adaptive, but it's, it certainly is challenging and it's, it's such a service that, um, you know, on, on he, I've, I've been on here at 3CR, we, James will remember the campaign we had to run to save this service and um, I couldn't be happier that uh, we have, you know, today that we've saved this service and we be able to help our older people, 80 people, um, you know, during the lockdown, during a really hard time.
0: Yeah, I really take my hat off to switchboard staff and volunteers. I mean, that's such a beautiful, heartfelt response to our queer elders. Uh, and imagine if the service had been defunded during a pandemic. How how tragic that would have been.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, you've got to, one of the things we always talk about now and about is the nature of the service, the, the visiting program, is that we are visiting people that, that often don't have anyone else in their life, um, that are really isolated and um, and have been disconnected from community because they've gone into aged care facilities, or because of a disability, or other age-related issues. And so the connection they have with us is is some of the only connections they have back to the plus community. But sometimes the only connections, full stop. Um, okay. They may not have engaged family, um, or family that they feel like they they want to be engaged with. And so. It is a very, very important service. I think it's um, it's one that I'm immensely proud of. It's one that we were sincerely hoping would get better funding through the Royal um, Royal Aged Care Commission. We did a submission to the Royal Aged Care Commission to argue for more funding so we could support more people. Um, but uh, as many people know about that issue is that um, that's not... Not going along so well at the moment. Scott Morrison has not prioritised the, the recommendations, the Royal Commission, which one of the recommendations was to fund programs like Switchboard um, better into the future.
0: That is really, really terrible, isn't it? And uh, it's not as if, you know, he hasn't been given the message. Uh, once again, the Prime is showing a bit of a tin ear.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the aged care space... One of the things I kept saying last year was that you know, if there's any time we're going to care about older people, like surely it's now. Like you know, in Victoria, the sheer number of people who died of COVID um, and the, the the high percentage of those people who were in aged care, now if, and and we're running a royal you know a royal commission to aged care. Like surely 2020 is the year to care about older people, and 2021 is the year to take action on that care. However, that. Remains to be seen, Um, and and yes, some aged care facilities are run by the Victorian government, but overwhelmingly they're run federally. And we just really needed to see an investment in 2021 in services like the community visitor scheme, which the Out and About program is funded through. However, we are just absolutely still waiting, and we're finding ourselves having to do fundraisers in order that we can send people care packages in their own homes. And I just feel like that should. We shouldn't have to fundraise to run these programs. They should be, you know, uh, they're such modest programs. They're volunteer run. Um, They don't need, you know, excessive amounts of funding, but they do need adequate funding. And I really had hoped, like many of us had, that the Royal Commission would sort that out. But it seems like we're left begging like a lot of the aged care sector is.
0: Joe Ball, always great to chat with you on 3CR. Keep up the great work at Switchboard. Thank you so much for joining me today on In Your Face. Yeah.
1: Thanks, James. And, if, and just everyone, if you haven't done your census, even though it's disappointing, still do it.
0: Absolutely. Cheers, Joe. Joe Ball there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James, and here's you and I. to the You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James, joined by former Senator Brian Gregg, joining us from Busselton in southwest WA. Brian, welcome back to the show.
2: Thanks very much, and hello, Melbourne.
0: Hello, indeed. Uh, A bit of a debacle with the census. Let's start with that. Uh, What are your thoughts on the government's exclusion? Is it a symptom of their um, right-wing ideology?
2: Yes, it is. And I wonder, perhaps, if it doesn't come back to just one particular minister, um, but obviously he, 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 that minister had the broader support of the, his, his cabinet and perhaps the prime minister, um, and they simply took, took a line where, you know, they're following the current narrative, which is very anti-trans, very anti-LGBTI, playing everything down, not wanting to talk about us or our issues. they kind of, you know, we've done marriage equality, we've, it's all done and dusted, now go away, um, and they just didn't want to deal with it. Um, but... I suppose the good thing to come out of that is uh, uh, wearing my other hat with, you know, as a spokesperson for Just Equal. We formally approached the Labor Party and we said, well, come on, guys, you're in opposition. What's, what's your policy position? The government's not going to do this. Will an Albanese Labor government uh, add the appropriate questions to the census for LGBTI people? And they said yes. So that was a good outcome.
0: Yes, indeed. Took a bit of prodding by the sounds of it. Is that your uh, take on it? Well, not
2: so much prodding as initiative. Um, you know, I was aware that, as I think most of your listeners were, you know, there were community groups and lobby groups out there pushing the government and saying, include us, you know, count us in, is the slogan they're using. And, and I'm sitting here in and, and thinking, hey, guys, you missed the boat. You know, the census is written. It's done and dusted. It's, you know, it's happening in a couple of days. We can't be included. The question is, how do we address this in the future? And And that's a question for both major parties, not just one of them. So just equal took the initiative to write to labor and say, "Where do you stand?" And um we flushed them out on it so that was good.
0: Yes. And I mean, you know, this whole thing with the government there's obviously divisions. There's divisions about the Prime Minister's response to the vaccine rollout. There's divisions over the religious discrimination bill. And clearly, you know, moderates such as, you know, people like Greg Hunt, who who argued, you know, for LGBT inclusion in the census. I mean, these these divisions are kind of adding up, would you say? Yeah, look, they're becoming a little bit more
2: prominent lately. I think your listeners are probably aware that there's a a handful of backbenchers. Some of them are the usual suspects, people like Dean Smith, uh, West Australian Liberal Senator, who was uh, quite good on marriage equality. But um, I know the member for Wentworth, Dave Sharma, has now spoken out. So they're rattling the sabre a little bit. I think they're just flagging that they're not going to go quietly necessarily on the religious freedom stuff, which is kind of looming in the background and which the Attorney um Michaelia Cash has said she intends to bring in before the end of this year. Um, and I think the moderates are just making the point that this is not a fait accompli for the conservative wing of the Liberal Party and that the issues are more complex and more nuanced than some people seem to think and that there needs to be broader discussion, particularly around the notion of not watering down Um, or or impacting adversely on existing anti-discrimination laws, which have taken a long time to achieve.
0: Yeah, I mean Dave Sharma, member for Wentworth, of course the gayest election in the country. I mean he could lose his seat over the religious discrimination bill. It's been good that he's been speaking out, and of course the issue of um, the prime minister's broken promise about you know preventing discrimination towards queer kids in religious schools. Yeah, uh, that hasn't happened. That's clearly not lost on him either. It's good the moderates have been speaking out, and it puts the attorney, doesn't it, Michaelia Cash, under some pressure to navigate you know uh, between the the warring factions. if you like, on religious discrimination. She's from your home state of WA. Um, How do you think the ducks are going to line up for her?
2: Uh, Look, it's hard to say, but the fact is that um, uh, Michaela Cash is is a senior person on the Senate ticket, and it's very hard, almost impossible for an electorate, uh, for the voters to turf out um, a major party senator who's up on the ticket. They just walk into Parliament. It's the parties themselves which appoint the people to Parliament, not the voters in relation to the Senate. It's a different battle than the lower house. Um, But I think the broader question, particularly for people like Senator Cash, is how do they juggle, how do they deal with the contradiction where, on the one hand, they're saying, and the religious conservatives say, we demand the right, we expect the right to be able to uh, not enrol LGBTI students or to expel them and to not hire uh, lesbian staff. Uh, or to sack a transgender staff member, they run all that very strongly. But the flip side of that is they say, "But we demand the right in public to say what we think," and they use the the Israel follow our example as their cause to live. So there's a there's a contradiction and a hypocrisy there where they they want to both eat their cake and have it too. And I think when you focus on those two issues and say, "Well, you know, if if you believe that it was wrong to sack," Uh, Israel Folau, that's their language, not mine. But you know, for whatever reason, for, for key reasons he was removed by Rugby Australia from his position because he spoke out in a biblical fashion, quote unquote. Then how can you at the same time justify sacking gay teachers? If, if this is about freedom of expression and freedom of speech, how can you on the one hand say that uh, Israel Folau's sacking was wrong, but the sacking of the teacher in New South Wales recently because she married her female partner was right?
0: Where does Michaelia Cash stack up ideologically on religious discrimination, do you think? I mean, I would have thought she was with the right of the party and not with the moderates.
2: Oh, very much so. But I think with an issue like this, it really doesn't come down to the personal views of the attorney. Um, it really comes down to the direction that the signals that, that she gets and others get from the prime minister, because this is not so much an administrative issue, but a political issue. And the liberals will be looking to the next election thinking, how is this going to play for us? Um, that the main reason, the key reason that uh, Scott Morrison and others want want to pursue this issue, religious freedom, is because it plays well for them in Western Sydney. And they want to maintain or possibly pick up new seats in Western Sydney based around the notion of protecting religious freedom. But the flip side of that is that the bill, this religious freedom bill, does not play well in other electorates, so it must be must be seen on balance. Uh, It could cost the Liberals in the more uh, urban and inner city seats.
0: So where do you think, how do you think Scott Morrison's going to jump, you know, considering all of those issues and considering that his government's under the pump anyway? Uh, Do you think he's going to kind of, you know, want to kind of, to save face and and legislate, but do it in a more moderate fashion, or do you think he's just going to go hell for leather?
2: I don't think he's going to do either, James. I think instead what is going to happen is... The report will be released, so version 29 or whatever it is of the Religious Freedom Bill will be released by Michaelia Cash, who will now say, "Okay, here's what the government wants to do, and this will be happened towards the end of this year. We're only a few months out from an election by this stage. Um, And then they will embark on a, a period of public inquiry and public consultation, which will roll right over the top of the election, period. So no legislation will be will be formally progressed and there'll be no vote in the parliament. Instead, what the Liberals will do is just use it as a rhetorical advice and a campaign tool during the election so that they can, the Conservative Liberals can stand up and say, this is what we want to do, and if we're re-elected, we'll move forward with this, and they'll try and wedge Labor. They'll put pressure on Labor and the Australian Christian Bobby and others will put pressure on Labor to say, hey, guys, where do you stand on this bill? This is all about trying to squeeze Labor out. It's not about trying to pass legislation.
0: It's interesting, actually, because I remember in 2004 when we spoke on the show, you know, 17 years ago, uh, when John Howard's government was really under the pump, especially on refugees, and was, you know, well behind in the polls. And you said it was your feeling that the coalition was going to win that election. And of course, they did. They picked up seats. How do you think it's going to play out, though, for Morrison with the pandemic and the dreadful vaccine rollout? I mean, we saw the pandemic kill Trump's presidency. Is he in a term, position, or do you think he will he will bounce back? I mean, looking into your crystal ball with your political acumen, what do you think?
2: Oh, look, I certainly wouldn't write the coalition off now. Um, polling is indicating they're behind, but hey, so did the last election, and look what happened. Um, I think the difficulty for Labor is, well, in, in a lazy sense, they're just sitting pretty, they're in poll position, and it looks like it's a walk-in for them at the next election. I don't take it for granted. And I don't think the electorate has really warmed to Albanese in the same way that they never quite warmed to Shorten. And I wonder if the profile of the leader, the Labor leader, might cost them the next election. Um, But but I think the other thing too, just segueing this back to religious freedom, I think that it's very difficult for the government, as much as they may want to pursue, some of them may want to pursue this issue, it's now very difficult to raise it in any serious sense because there are so many more important issues to deal with. The economy is struggling. We have a COVID pandemic across the country. Uh, that's, they're the number one and two things the government must be focusing on. And if they suddenly said, introduced the bill and said, hey, guess what, everyone, we're now doing religious freedom, I think a lot of people in the electorate would sit up and say, what the hell is going on? Um, it just, I just don't think it would play well right now. It's, it's the sort of thing you might introduce mid-term when you've got a whole lot of things rolling along and it can be there in the background. But to, to suddenly launch it now, I think, would be seen as very distasteful and, dist- and unnecessarily distracting by the electorate.
0: Especially when you look at its provisions that affect women and the government has such, you know, bad form on women's issues. Uh, you, you'd think they wouldn't want to dig all that up again.
2: No, I think you're right. Um, but I'd also say that, in my view, not enough groups, I mean, outside of the LGBTI community, not enough groups who are impacted adversely by this bill have really spoken out, because it's not just the gays who are belting with this. Uh, it's also people with disability. It's also women. It's also people of minority faiths. Uh, I think they need to pay closer attention to this. And I also think that our own community needs to build bridges, Um, socially and politically with those other disaffected groups so that there's a broader campaign uh, both of awareness and opposition to the bill
0: Of course we are chatting with Senator Brian Gregg, former Senator Brian Gregg from Western Australia. Uh, Brian, your home state uh, had an election a few months ago McGowan romped in Uh, he made some commitments about LGBTIQ issues including banning conversion practices how's the government tracking on that?
2: Uh Well, they've done nothing to date, Um, and it's important to reiterate that the extent to which the the Labor government over here uh, prior to the election said that they would look at conversion practices, it was only so far as medical services were concerned. So uh, for your listeners, that's basically the Queensland model, so you'd be aware that Premier Palaszczuk in Queensland has banned, quote-unquote, conversion practices in Queensland, but it doesn't impact It doesn't cover religious organisations. So, let's be honest, it's useless legislation because 90% of conversion practices take place through religious organisations. Your home state, uh, under Dan Andrews, went much further and much better and introduced what is now Australia's gold standard legislation because it covers both medical circumstances, formal settings and informal religious settings. In Western Australia, and the ACT did similarly, of course. Um, In my home state, uh, the government has only said up until now that they're just looking at uh, formal medical settings. Now, as it happens, myself and some others had a meeting with uh, the attorney's senior advisors just a couple of days ago in Perth, where we raised this and other issues, and we've asked them to look at it more broadly and reconsider it and understand that other states, including Tasmania and South Australia, are now holding inquiries into this stuff and that it is likely that more states are going to go down the path of banning and criminalising conversion practices in a way that covers both uh, medical and religious settings. And I think that was a little bit of a wake-up call to um, the people we were talking to and who, who now, I think, have a better understanding of the issue.
0: So what did they say?
2: Oh, look, it's it's an ongoing process. You know, Nothing's going to happen in a hurry. Um, they've asked for a bit more information, which we can provide, and, of course, we'll put them in contact with survivor groups and those lobby groups who have done such a tremendous uh, job already on the eastern seaboard and we will put them in contact. But my, my instinct is that if the McGowan government does any LGBTI stuff in the next, in this term, it is probably most likely to be around the question of conversion practices.
0: Has Mark McGowan moved to reform the upper house in WA and get rid of the gerrymander?
2: He started the process, uh, James. He has commissioned... Um, Uh, former, I think, Supreme Court Judge Malcolm McCusker, if I'm mistaken, uh, to conduct a review uh, and to look at a range of models for the government to consider for uh, reforming the upper house, effectively bringing in one vote, one value. We have a disproportionately elected upper house, which for 100 years has favoured the Conservatives and it's always meant that Labor governments have never had the upper house. Now they do. So they'll now look at a range of options, and when the Labor caucus decides on which one they think is best for them and for the electorate, then we can expect that to sail through the parliament. So I would anticipate that within the next 18 months.
0: Of course, you were a senator for the Australian Democrats. Any chance of you running again, not for the Democrats, but for anyone? (laughs) You must have the taste Uh, for it, Brian. It never quite goes away, the itch.
2: No, once once it's in your blood, it's there. Look, I'm quite... I think of myself these days as semi-retired. I I, I work part time, and um, as of two years ago, I moved to the countryside. Now I did the sea change, and I'm now living in a in a small country town by the sea. Um, and I work in in, uh, in in quite a big gear change. I now work in hospitality, and I'm I'm not a I'm not a desk job person anymore. And uh, that's tremendous. But the thing with working part time and being a bit more relaxed is it gives me often more opportunities to do this stuff. Um, it gives me opportunities to have meetings in Perth with the Attorney General staff. It gives me an opportunity to work with Just Equal in, on campaigns to issue press releases and to raise issues. And So I still keep my hand in and I enjoy that.
0: Of course, you are in turn. I discovered over the last week there's quite a thriving queer community there. There's a bit of pride festivity that goes on there.
2: There is indeed. Uh, the local council flies the rainbow flag during our Pride Week. There's a local group called Bustleton Mardi Gras, which has a one-week festival each year, including a parade down the main street. Um, and I got involved with a, uh, a local group here called Bustleton Pride Alliance, and we're working on uh, raising issues and doing advocacy.
0: Brian Gregg, keep up the fight, and thank you so much for joining me today on 3CR. My pleasure. Brian Gregg, there you are and In Your Face on 3CR with James, and here's Regurgitator. <laughs>
3: All it's always the same.
0: Agitator there, happiness you are, and in your face on 3CR with James, joined by filmmaker Melanie Rowland from Lilydale Films. Melanie, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. You have a wonderful film that you have produced. It's called Flunk the Exchange, it's a lesbian teen drama. Uh, what can you tell us about it?
4: Yeah, so um, the film is it's, uh, our latest project which we're very excited about. It tells the story of an international exchange student Annie who travels to New Zealand to study for a semester and then things get a little complicated when she has sort of an instant connection with her roommate's girlfriend. So I would say it's a love story uh, about deciding what you want in life and going for it no matter what the consequences are.
0: It's a brave genre to approach because, you know, um, in certain circles it might be a controversial topic, a lesbian teen drama. Uh, it sounds like you're crashing through a few barriers with this one. Um,
4: well, what I would say, so we have a... Um, I have a YouTube channel that I've been um, building for the last few years called Slunk, and it uh, programs for young queer audiences with a focus of coming-of-age stories. So we, um, we've we been making a show here in Melbourne for the last three years and built a really passionate fan base around it. Um, they want to see their themselves and their relationships represented on screen and we have had over 55 million views to date and um, 220,000 subscribers. So what we wanted to do was bring... Um, a film to them that we just knew that they would absolutely love, and it was made specifically for that audience because they're just so hungry for it.
0: Absolutely. So, what are some of the barriers you've experienced, if any, creating work in this genre?
4: I, you know, I'm not really sh- sure that we have actually. Um, it's we've been doing it for, for a little a little while now, and there's always um, you know conversations to have with actors around you know what they're comfortable with. But I think that's really part and parcel of filmmaking and, and it would sort of happen um, in all, all filmmaking um, ventures. You know, you know, there's a conversation to be had there.
0: So it's really exciting how you've approached this. I mean, you've made a, a feature-length film, but you've divvied it up into an 18-part series on YouTube, which must make it so much more accessible to that hungry younger audience, especially during a pandemic.
4: Yeah, absolutely, and YouTube is just such a fantastic platform for really getting a project out there in front of a really big audience. Um, we do uh, a few different things to try and make our projects as accessible as possible. Um, one of the things we do is uh, we actually caption all of our shows into over 30 languages, which um, has meant that we've got fan bases that have sort of popped up all around the world in um You know, it's sort of the show's big in the US, the UK and Europe, but then in a lot of sort of more conservative countries like Russia and um, countries across Southeast Asia and the Middle East where, you know, they don't have as much locally produced queer content for them. They just, um, they come to, they find our show and because we've um, made it accessible for them, they they come in droves, (laughs) which is great. Um,
0: yeah it's funny I was going to ask you what lessons you've learned about you know um, making a film in that format but it sounds like you know the film industry should be asking you some questions about you know and should be reflecting on what they can learn from you because you're on the cutting <laughs> edge by the sounds of it um
4: yeah I haven't really come across uh so many projects that are doing what we're doing so we're producing content with our very specific audience in mind a lot of um filmmakers are sort of out there trying to make a project hoping that you know a platform will pick it up um but we've sort of had the um the opposite approach and sort of tried to to build our own um audience so that we can then create content for them which i think has sort of uh really um changed our approach to, to filmmaking we um As part of the Accelerator program a few years ago called Lean Filmmaking, which is all about that um, ideology of putting your audience first and creating something with them in mind. Um, So that's really where that's come from. And when we've applied that, it's um, been incredible for us. We've had um, such a fantastic project audience fit and then the growth just comes from there.
0: So you made Flunk the Exchange in New Zealand. Why would you travel over there to do it?
4: I didn't travel, unfortunately. Um, So, as I said, we had this channel uh, that we wanted to create content for. And last year we were faced with just months and months of lockdowns in Melbourne. And we were looking around at where we could possibly produce a project. Uh, And so New Zealand was an obvious choice. They have sort of um, come through this pandemic with... uh, uh, wonderful um, outcomes, you know, they've, I think they've only ever had to lock down once or twice for a week or so at a time. Um, and so, yeah, we hired a, a small crew out there, and then we cast with um, local um, talent. And that was, uh, yeah, that was where it came from. Tell us about
0: the two young actors in Flunk the Exchange. Uh, they're, they're very talented
4: yeah yeah we have um a, a really wonderful um cast in the project, so I would say there's probably three leading it's hard it would be hard to split it into to two uh but we have uh Mirene Castletort who plays annie uh she's fantastic she um uh, when we saw her in the audition we just knew she was the one she actually grew up in Mexico and so was able to bring a lot of really lovely, authentic touches to the role. She spoke Spanish and she could sort of just bring little details to it, which made it really um, feel really authentic and, um, and fantastic. Then we also had Lucy Weimer, who plays Sabina, who's her roommate. She is uh, an actress on Shortland Street, which is sort of like the New Zealand Neighbours or Home and Away. And then Celine Dam, who's another up-and-comer. Uh, she's a very exciting actor with lots of energy and just brought... Great chemistry to the to the screen for us.
0: You must find it really empowering being a, a film producer, producing your own work. Tell us a bit about yourself and also Lilydale Productions.
4: Yeah, no, it's um, it's a, it is very exciting being able to produce your own work. Um, so my background is um, I sort of came up working in pro- drama production in Melbourne. I worked on lots of different um, fantastic shows and, and movies over the years like Please Like Me and Holding the Man, Ronnie Chang, um, things like that. But I sort of came to a point where I really wanted to produce my own um my own shows. So it can be uh a little daunting I think when you do take that on because you're kind of the <laughs> the end of the um the line with all, you know, every decision comes down to you and you've got a lot of um, you know, it's a gamble. You, you never know whether what you're going to do is going to work. Um, but yeah, we've been very lucky to find such a, a fabulous audience and it's uh it's fantastic now. We're in a position where we can sort of find create projects and um know that we're going to um get eyeballs seeing them and it's uh yeah, it's great.
0: And it must be great, as you say, steering your own ship, just having that sense of control over your own destiny and tapping into a market that, that, you know, hasn't been adequately tapped into. uh, It's very exciting.
4: It is. It is. And we've um, we've got so many uh, projects uh, planned in the pipeline. We've been lucky enough to have some funding come through from Screen Australia and Film Victoria to produce the... Third series of our Australian drama Flunk. So that filmed uh, in that glorious window between lockdowns in about April, May this year. Uh, and then we also have another um, feature film project in post production as well that features two of our Flunk cast. Um, it's, uh, the characters broke up and so they find that they are stuck together. Uh, at a friend's party, and it's a will they, won't they get back together kind of um, kind of story, uh, which will be coming out right after the exchange on our channel uh, in mid October, I believe.
0: And it's such a great name for a series, Flunk. Like it's so catchy and groovy.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. It's fun. It's, so, it's, it's said ad nauseum at my house. <laughs> I have not grown on think of it yet.
0: So how did you come up with the name Flunk?
4: So the name, lots of people ask this. So the name, it's about, uh, it's, so because the stories are coming of age, teenage stories, it's sort of reclaiming that failure that you feel when you're a young person and you're trying to find your way in the world and it's just, you know, it's first loves and first heartbreaks and all the pressure of school and, finding yourself in the world and it's it's hard and you fail constantly. Um, but, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's reclaiming that and saying, it's okay, you know, you're going to make mistakes and it doesn't matter and there's a, a path through and, you know, a happy ending at the end there somewhere.
0: <laughs> so how can people watch Flunk the Exchange? Give us
4: the lowdown. You can watch Flunk for free uh, on our YouTube channel, uh, Flunk Series. So you just go into YouTube and type Flunk series and you'll find we've done 64 episodes of the Australian series so far and The Exchange is rolling out at the moment. It comes out on a Saturday night so we've got two episodes out so far and episode three comes out tomorrow.
0: Wonderful. Melanie Rowland from Lilydale Films, thank you so much for chatting with me on 3 c and congratulations on Flunk The Exchange. It's wonderful.
4: Thanks for having me. Three CR.